What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is the Bill Bruford. Bill is a legendary drummer whose illustrious career spans over five decades, marked with pioneering contributions to progressive rock, jazz fusion, and beyond. Emerging onto the music scene in the late 1960s, Bruford gained prominence as the drummer for progressive rock icons Yes, where his intricate rhythms and dynamic playing style helped define the band's sound. His tenure with Yes produced several critically acclaimed albums, including Close to the Edge and Fragile, solidifying his reputation as one of the foremost drummers of his generation. In addition to his work with Yes, Bruford became a member of the seminal progressive rock band King Crimson and influenced generations of musicians. Over the years, Bruford's musical journey evolved, leading him to explore jazz fusion with his own band, Earthworks, and dive into experimental projects that push the boundaries of musical expression. A prolific recording artist, respected educator, and insightful author, Bill Bruford's multifaceted career is a testament to his unwavering dedication to pushing the limits of creativity and leaving an indelible mark on the world of music. So I hope you enjoy the five records that helped shape Bill Bruford into the drummer he is today. And the cool thing about this is I actually getting ready for the show me and bill were talking about what his five would be and he actually has a playlist on spotify with a truckload of songs that have inspired him and so he had me choose five from that list so i have linked it in the show notes please go check out that list and thank you so much bill this was an honor and enjoy the show cheers creating how do you balance structure and spontaneity on a drum kit you mean yeah or in life <laughs> well hey we can answer both of those i'm sure people would need to know both well as in life so on the drum kit i mean the person you're speaking to is very like the guy who's playing the drum kit mm -hmm. the style and the character i have as a person and yours too will come out on on, on in your playing it's the it's very clear really i play a lot of jazz and i'm interested in interaction I'm interested in music, which has a great deal of interaction. I say something, and because I've said that, you say something else. And the tenor saxophone plays, played something else. And now we've all changed, because my first idea has now moved on. And this was all happening at micro speed, the speed of the improvising musician. Uh, I like that a lot. That's what I do at home. I'm retired, really, from big-time kind of music making, so I prefer small-time music mm -hmm. making. In fact, I'm an amateur musician now which I think is rather a nice idea. 
I used to be a professional like- musician for 41 years, and now I'm an amateur musician. And I'll tell you what, I enjoy it just as much, <laughs> <laughs> if not more. So uh, improvisation, I, that's what I do now. So I'm heavily slewed that way. Um, I'd rather the thing didn't have fancy, complicated parts. Uh, and so I tend to avoid those if possible. Do you have any personal parameters when you are creating for a drum beat? Like, are there any um, non-negotiables? No, I don't think so. I would like to be intrigued and not quite know what it is that I'm doing. I'm trying to find something, something I haven't configured before, um, a different thing. Somebody, I've been trying to steal somebody's idea, but it doesn't work that way, but it might work this way. Mm-hmm. different voicings on the instrument, ways to make things sound different, all those things will send a little green light on in my head saying, ah, you know, I could use this. This might be of interest with musician B or musician A. Um, so those things are important. I, I don't tend to settle on the first 4-4 four, four bar I can think of. I, te- I tend to, take, to go to, to base number two or base number three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a personal question. So... I love having fun with style. Where did you buy your t-shirts back in the day? There's so many damn cool videos of you with the coolest pattern shirts. <laughs> t-shirts or... or uh, Button-up, button-up. Button-up shirts. Oh, I don't know. I didn't have a single store all over the place. <laughs> I'm not a clothes guy anyway, but... Uh, it seemed like you were. You look you looked so good back in the... I mean, you look great oh, yeah. now, but I'm saying yeah. like the shirts back in the day. <laughs> You're very kind. I don't know why. I mean, as as a kid, I when I first came to the United States, I really didn't understand the Boston Bruins. And for some reason, I saw the Boston Bruins kind of logo around in an airport store. And I said, oh, that's cute. This, you know, my name's Bill Bruford B. Get it? You know, sure, I get. I'll, I'll put that on, on the front of my kind of jeans or my T-shirt or something. And so people will, will figure out I won't put it on a bass drum, but I'll put it on my chest. Yeah. So people will know who I am. And uh, I didn't realize I'd, I walked, put myself into a snake pit of, of, you know, sports hell, because some people don't like the Bruins and some people support them a lot. And some people sure. Don't. So I walked into that as a foreigner coming to your beautiful country. <laughs> what things, and I'm assuming you have a million, but what influences outside of the drums, what non-drummer has influenced you as a drummer, I guess is the better way to say that. In the sphere of music, of course. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Well, other musicians, uh, David Bowie, mm. not because I was a particular fan of his songs, but um, because I never knew what he was going to do next. And, and I like that about an artist. I, you know, repetition is not really my thing. I don't really like going on a long legacy tours or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Just uh, putting out the same old music. And, and David Bowie kept going right to the end. Miles Davis, same reason but also economy of playing. You know, the genius was Dizzy Gillespie, who could play unbelievable stuff, or Freddie Hubbard and stuff. And Miles didn't really. He didn't have those chops. So what are you going to do? You know, musicians have to think about this. And he fashioned a style from himself, necessity being the mother of invention. You know, he couldn't play. He couldn't keep up with the other guys. So you figure out a way to do it. And I think that's lovely. I think I probably learned that from him. I probably said to myself, well, you know, I'm not going to be Buddy Rich here, so I need to think of a way I can approach drumming, will convey my character and my choices that aren't all blinding speed. Necessarily, mm-hmm. it might be, but not necessarily. 
along that same vein on Bruford and the Beat, I, I remember seeing you talking about your left hand and how how you didn't like how you held it. So to, to oh, cut yeah, through the mix, you had to do the rim shots and stuff. So yeah, there you go. That's a very good example of that. Speaking of, by the way, uh, so you have met this gentleman. His name is Eric Slick, and he plays in the band Dr. Dog. He plays with Kevin Morby, Natalie Prass. He's also a solo artist. And you are actually one of his. Uh, Bruford and the Beat was one of his top five a few years ago. So I asked him, I was like, you know, Eric, I'm going to be talking to Bill. Ask him a question that would be kind of <laughs> unique. And he wanted to know, was the Simmons drumming on Waiting Man influenced by Steve Reich? Absolutely. Absolutely so. In fact, funny you should mention that because I have a YouTube channel and uh, this Friday, is this Friday? Um, this Friday, that very song live in concert, I'm, I'm uploading it. Oh, awesome. And the, at the uploading of these things, there's a description that I do every week and describing the song and its context and whys and hows and nuts and bolts of it. And it's funny that Eric or you should be talking about that because I've just, just finished doing that particular description. Which is wow. could be five hundred words. It may be a thousand words. It's quite long. Yeah, um, I forgot what the question was. Yes, indeed, it's it's influenced by uh, Steve Reich's piece called Drumming, which is one configuration of drums with several players, a, a couple of players on either side of the drums. So we did a stripped down version of that. That's awesome. That uh, drumming has also been another person's top five. So uh, oh great! <laughs> shout out to Steve Reich. Well, yeah. All right, well, let's just hop into Bill's Big Fat Five. So the album is Drums Unlimited. The artist is Max Roach, release years 1966. And the key track we're going to listen to is For Big Sid, and the drummer is Max Roach. So, Bill, take it away. Well, I think uh, when I was a kid, you know, now going back to when I was quite young, I probably had three influences, I suppose, big time. Uh, one of which would be Art Blakey. One of which, all Americans, I'm afraid, no, no Brits in this. Art Blakey, uh, Joe Morello, probably for his fantastic technical ability, and um, Max Roach. And, and Max stunned me because he was so elegant and economical on the kit, a bit like Miles. He just in, had invented this whole new approach to drum soloing. And if there is a drummer li listening to us here, uh, right now, and you, sh you should know about Max Roach, so go and get a listen to some of this stuff if you can. And he his his drum solos were really effectively beautiful little compositions, very elegant, uh, all about space, all about time, and really thinking not so much about chords and melody, but thinking about design. So, so he used to say, well, think of my drum solos as architecture, which is a nice way of looking at it. Why don't we play a little? Thank you. 
I did a, you know, kind of tribute to Max Roach. I did one of his songs called uh, The Drum Also Waltzes. I recorded that as a lovely 3-4 thing. Recorded that on, on an album with a partner of mine called Patrick Moraz, keyboard player, on an album called Flags. And I also did a sort of homage, if you like, to, to Joe Morello, who one of his albums called um, what's called Far More Drums was a fantastic... So the album was called Time Further Out. And on that album was a solo of his called Far More Drums. And it's a very, very influential piece of music. I absolutely adore it. And I did a, a sort of pastiche in the same kind of sound, same kind of style, even ripped off a few of his licks in uh, on an album of mine called If Summer Had Its Ghosts. How was jazz initially introduced into your life? Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I, I was at a school and, uh, you know, the, uh, the senior guy was was leaving the school and he was the jazz drummer. And I was just getting into it. I don't quite know how I got near a drum kit. My sister had influenced me by giving me a pair of brushes because a boyfriend had given her a pair of brushes and said, and said, why don't you swish these around on an album sleeve, a thick card album sleeve, and it sounded just like a snare drum. Mm-hmm. And it did sound great, and I progressed from brushes to a pair of sticks. And then, you know, I was very influenced by everything that was going on in the school, and um, I learned to play ting, ting, ting on a cymbal before I played straight eighth. So I fell into jazz. All these guys were jazz heads, you know, so they were, they were here, and, as I say, Morello and Blakey and Roach. We listened to Ringo and Charlie Watts, and we thought that was nice, but we didn't like it as much as the, the previous three gentlemen. And we were just, uh, you know, hard jazz heads. So that's how I grew up, really thinking. And then when I joined Yes, I would think I thought I was joining a jazz group. I didn't really know what I was joining. <laughs> it, it didn't bother me. It turned out it wasn't a jazz group, but that's how I started, really. Well, you made it your own. Yeah, yeah. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, (laughs) I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co 
The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. And check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. So this is a fun one. So this is a more contemporary one. And I, I going through your list, I was not surprised, but I was pleasantly, I was just happy seeing all your lists because it is all over the place. So this is a new <laughs> one. It's Lewis Cole. The album is Live Sesh and Extra Songs, which is a fun, kitschy little title. The artist is, of course, Lewis Cole. Release here is 2019. The track we're going to listen to is F It Up dash Live Sesh. And of course, Lewis Cole. So how how this one get on your radar? Well, I... You know, I don't know. You know, YouTube, I guess we got a lot to, to hate YouTube for, but a lot to thank it for as well. Because, you know, YouTube has bought all this stuff. The, the fact that I can sit here and click and get any music I want at any time. And, uh, you know, on the grapevine, people say things and they say, oh, I just heard this guy, Lewis Cole, you'll never believe it, you know. And I listened and absolutely adored him. I mean, first of all, he can play like a, like a, a very accomplished musician. He wrote carefully. He plays uh, absolutely beautifully, but also it's the kind of DIY punk nature of it that's really fun too. I think there's the, the the YouTube happens to have him in his own apartment, I think, or his own house, or something like that, or somebody's house, and with a huge band jammed in the corner, and it's just completely DIY. He plays a bit of keyboards, leaps to the drums. It's really good. I've seen him here in the UK. He's a very talented guy, very very young, very funny. You know everything you want. Young, young guys to be we old guys we you know we're very stuffy now you know you know we don't play i mean who cares about rock music let's say you know that i mean that feels like already it feels like the 20th century it feels old so does the word jazz and somehow the new guys are across both they're blurring and bending and uh, clearly they know both and they can play both bear in mind that when i was a kid you couldn't play both you, you first of all Rock drummers were hopeless at jazz. Jazz drummers were even worse at rock. Absolutely awful. And uh, even if you did, as a jazz drummer, try to play some rock, everybody would say you were selling out. But you don't know that phrase, selling out. But that's how it would have been. You know, so you could like Hendrix or you could like Coltrane, but you couldn't like Hendrix and Coltrane. So that's kind of the where I came from. So to watch young people today who were so talented and so much better than we were, playing right across these genres and being able to play it all and then invent something out of it. And we'll get into more drummers later on in this conversation if we do that. Uh, you know, I suppose Lewis Cole was one of those in a way. Uh... 
Here he comes. One, two, three. <laughs> Change room. Nice cooking. People go listen to the whole thing. Yeah, he's. I've I've seen a few videos of him breaking down some of his beats, and he's sneaky. Some of those things are a lot more complicated than they come across. Oh yeah, it just sounds like a, a, a four four easy, but notice a lot of clever stuff in there. Really yeah. good. All right. Well, number three, the album's Caravan. You already mentioned this gentleman, but it's Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and the release here's 1963. And then yeah, Art Blakey is the drummer. So take it away. Well, he, he reminds me so much of my youth. You know, we, we've gone back the other way now. Right now, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this when I was 15. Mm. So, you know, half a century ago kind of thing. And and the, the BBC TV would have these great American stars come in. And on a primetime TV, Saturday at 6.25 in the, in the evening, you'd have uh, the Art Blake, Art Blake's Jazz Messengers, you know, with Freddie Hubbard and, and great people, Sonny Stitt and... Oh, fantastic jazz just being fed on, on the, the nation's main TV channel. <laughs> is there an archive? There, there is. I think I think they are for sale, but you can you can look them up on YouTube and it's called Jazz 625. And the recording quality was just beautiful, you know, and I to this day, I don't know how it so few microphones and everybody placed carefully a live announcer and a live audience. And we heard jazz, proper, you know, the, the real thing. So I grew up with jazz in that way. And one of those people was Art Blakey. So I'm I'm intrigued by the, the band. I think the band is actually tr terrific. And this guy at the back, you know, he seems to be controlling everything. Nothing would go anywhere until he cracked the whip. And when he cracked the whip, boy, did they take off, you know. And as a kid, I'm watching this thinking, this is great. I, you know, I didn't realize that drums could, could have that, that enormous, powerful instrument at the back has so much dynamic control within the music. So it was a drum lesson. Of course, the whole thing was a drum lesson. And his music has, has stuck with me uh, ever since, and particularly his sound. He had a, a deep sound on the toms, a wonderful press roll. And, uh, and, and a, a deeply sort of African sound, which is really nice. You, you'll hear it coming up on Caravan.
All right, so now, I probably edited this out, but I tried to skip over Caravan, but now we can talk about Mark, sweetheart of a guy and also a great player. And I love the story of how David just found these guys, but anyways, the album is Black Star. The artist is David Bowie. Release years 2016. I, I remember the day that came out. I can't believe that's 2016 now. But yeah, the, the key tracks, Black Star, and like I said, the, the drummer is Mark Juliana. So um, yeah, take it away. Well, uh, I, I was intrigued by the story, like like you were. I I knew him, uh, Mark, the drummer. I knew him. He'd been he'd been over here playing jazz at Ronnie Scott's a lot with the bass player whose name I've temporarily forgotten. And uh, he, and I got gotten to know, to know him and um, absolutely admired his drumming, which is really good. So I've known him since he was kind of unknown, I guess. You know, I was kind of a keen a patron of his of his stuff. I just like the whole story that the Bowie was looking for people and he thought he'd rather have jazz guys than rock guys because, you know, the kind of, like I'm saying, people who cross over and a lot of them live in Brooklyn or New York, more so than in London right now. Those guys can, can go between cutting edge rock and cutting edge jazz, prog jazz, prog rock, if you like, very easily. Uh, so it was a very wise choice from, from David Bowie, I think. The, the music itself, you know, the circumstances, he was dying, David Bowie, so it's a sort of deathbed statement, if you like, is that the, the music is kind of creepy, kind of disjointed, and Mark has this this deep snare drum, and the, the drum kit is kind of out of balance a bit, and it, it doesn't matter, all this adds so much to the atmosphere of the track that he's trying to create. You know, there are, there are other people who could have done it, I think, but the, 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 four, the four of them, I think it's um, Danny McCoslin, I think, the, the saxophone player, Tim Lefebvre on uh, bass, and I can't remember the other guy, another person I don't know. And uh, they, were, they were a settled unit, and, and David, I think, wanted to have a settled unit to do this. It was a, a, a real honour, I think, for, for Mark to do it, and... Um, I love the whole circumstance of it. And of course, I always think his performance is fantastic. His own groups are terrific. Has Mark been on your show? Yep. Oh, okay, great. Hi, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Solitary candle In 
it just makes you keep wanting to listen. You never yeah. know. It's, yeah, it's wow. Yeah, I mean, you, you you can't figure out the drummer's approach to start with. It seems so disjointed, you know. Is it a groove? Not really. Is it is it art? Maybe it is. You know, it's it's a strange approach, and it doesn't settle till around the line on this day of execution. Around there, he starts playing a recognizable, you know, drum line that we'd all we we can all play. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he got there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's almost like he and the the drum is so deep. It's such a deep, slopped off kind of snare drum sound. For Tony Visconti and David Bowie, it, it's uh, unusual drumming, and, and a lot of a lot of producers would say, "Forget that, we ain't using that." Powerful record, I think, all in all. All right, so let's talk about Ginger Baker. So, ah. fresh fresh cream is the album, and uh, the artist is Cream. Release year is nineteen sixty six. The uh, the song we're going to listen to is "I Feel Free," and yeah, old cranky Ginger Baker is the drummer. So, take it away, and then we'll listen. See, I, I knew um, I, I knew him or knew of him when I was 14 or 15 years old. And in a way, he was my pathway into drums, too. Uh, so on the British side, it would only be Ginger Baker. It was a guy I was listening to. Mm. And he was a tough guy at the time. He was only about 22, for heaven's sake. But, but uh, you know, I thought I thought he was he had a very cool way of smoking a cigarette. You know, <laughs> you know, a cigarette there and, and the um the stick and, and the ash wouldn't fall off the cigarette because he was so relaxed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but immediately as a kid, you know, I'm, I'm immediately start smoking because I want to be Ginger Baker. Of course. He, he turned into a kind of cranky guy, but, but at the time he, he was the man. And uh, he was swinging like crazy with the Graham Bond organization. And so I would go to clubs because in the States, you usually couldn't do that. But at 14, 15, 16, I'd go with some of the older guys I was hanging with. And we'd go and hear these strange people, John McLaughlin and Dick Hextel Smith and Graham Bond on organ and uh, Ginger Baker on drums or Peter Baker, as he was known then. And uh, it was tough. It was a very strong urban kind of rhythm and blues. A lot of Ray Charles, a lot of alto saxophone, very jazzy. Great. Absolutely mind bending stuff for someone like me. And then eventually they uh, they cut this big album and in, in 1968, Wheels of Fire, I think it was. I'm not sure when this particular cut was made, but anyway, it was around 1968, 66, 68, mm-hmm. which is when I was starting. You know, I was all ears for everything that I could possibly get my teeth into. And uh, Ginger linked me, I suppose, to rock music in the sense that all the great British studio drummers were all jazz drummers. And they were all falling into rock. Um, who was the guy who played with Hendrix? Um, Mitch Mitchell. Uh, Mitch Mitchell, same guy. He was with the Riot Squad, which was a, a, a kind of a rock band, but also a studio guy. He could mm-hmm. play anything. And, and all those people were falling into this new explosive place called rock music, which was post Beatles, was, you know, awash with money. And uh, you could sort of do anything. So, so these guys formed a fantastic band. And, and I Feel Free was just symptomatic of the times it's a beautiful pop song the harmony vocals are great uh it's got some harmonic interest baker's uh intro right at the beginning he plays i feel free that particular phase on the toms you know two hands two toms uh, and then kicks into the hi-hat he plays most of the song on the hi-hat half open kind of very strong very strong you'll hear it now all right here we go Boom, 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 boom. 
So cool. Yeah, it's interesting how light he's, he's not. He's not hitting the snare hard, mm-hmm. and the bass drum is relatively quiet in the mix. I mean, these days, to a lot of young ears listening with us, Ben, uh, you know, they might find that strange. Why is the drummer so sort of fluid and, and a little bit in the back? And same with early Yes records. The drums are pattering away at the back. You know, uh, these days, as we know, to my ears, the bass drum is overkill. It's, it's stuck in the middle of your face and. Uh, it pummels you to death. So I think in, in my, my generation, the drums are in a more subtle and supple place where you could play more things on a bass drum, actually, uh, of interest. How uh, involved in the mixing of the early Yes records were you personally? Well, I was very young, you know, and I had no studio experience at all. They assigned us a studio engineer who wasn't much good, I didn't think. But uh, it was far bit from me, you know, to say you know, you should turn this up and that down. I, I didn't want to do that. I was very young. Mm-hmm. So, and and, and it, completely new to recording studios. My first sessions really were yes, record sessions. So I didn't know how hard to hit the drums. I didn't know that you could have different instruments in your headphone balance. Really, I mean, I had not been to a music school that taught me that stuff, you know, so I learned it the hard way. <laughs> was it just bass and you were just like, this is what I got, I guess? Kind of. Kind of. I had an awful lot of Peter Banks guitar in one ear and somebody's echo reverberation in another ear. So was he out of time? Kind of, yeah. It's all very strange. But that's uh, how I, I got through it. You, you learn fast, I think. We did in those days. And you were kind of talking about money was being put in into rock. And it, it, it reminded me of a, of a statement you made talking about Maybe it was your conversation with Vinny, which I love that conversation, by the way, uh, on oh, Vin- Vinny Calutis podcast. But just talking yeah. about how, like, rock today or just like the state of being, yes, and King Crimson wouldn't have the funds. Like, you w- you can't really have those bands anymore because the money's not being given to bands that just want to make interesting music like that, and it's uh, unfortunate. It's it's in, in, all, all but impossible now to to run a band with creative music, as it were. Yep. You know, uh, I regret, I'm unhappy to have to tell you that you and your generation are content providers. 
uh, which is a terrible phrase. I used to be a musician, but now I understand I'm a content provider, uh, which is something that I have to provide to uh, another person who's going to, you know, do do something with this. You don't feel free. I feel free is not really going to swing it today. I'm afraid it's difficult to do, unless of course you can do it at home and you you get lucky. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's another whole topic of conversation. I think perhaps not for this. Well, I know you have a heart out in a few minutes, so I do want to talk about one song that is probably not, I don't want to say what people expect, but there's not really a lot of drums, if any, in this one. So this is <laughs> this is The Lamb, and it was originally performed for the first time in 1982, and uh, I'm going to butcher this guy's last name. Is it John uh, Taverner? Taverner. Yeah, yep. it was. It was. I mean, you probably know the story. It was. It was music to be behind the song, a poem called "The Lamb," if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, talk about that, and then we'll listen to it. Why did it inspire well, you? Well, I mean, I don't know much more about it than you do, I, I, other than that it's very popular here in the UK. I'm sure it is in the United States too. Uh, it's kind of uh, associated with Christmas mm-hmm. because uh, you know the the Christ baby Jesus was uh, you know equated with a lamb. And that that uh, comes up, of course, a lot at Christmas time. It happens to have dissonance and consonants in it a lot, particularly in the sort of second section. It's just beautiful, where choirs you know can split into two, and they're singing a semitone apart. Mm. You know, and you get that incredible dissonance, and you think that's so brave. But I I, I take my hat. I don't sing, so I take my hat off to singers who can hold a note one semitone different from you which is difficult. Um, and of course, there's no drums, but the shape and power of the music is influential to me anyway, in and of itself. It's a, a lovely piece of music, I think. All right, here we go, The Lamb. Oh, there you go. That was a nice dissonance. Haunting. Look out, look out, look out. Wow. And shivers down my spine. Yeah. Taverner said he wrote it on the train going down from London to the West Country in England in 15 minutes. Isn't that amazing? Of course. It's hard, hard to believe, but, uh, you know, let's say, let's say it took a couple of hours, but isn't that amazing, you know, to be able to handle music in that way? He probably wrote it on the back of an envelope. Yeah. Mm, lovely. British composer. Well, Bill, I've taken up uh, plenty of your time. It's been an honor talking to you. I can tell how nervous I am talking to you. It's such, you're such a, a force. Uh, I, I know people are going to be so excited to click on this episode. Um, I hope you know how much people love you and appreciate all you've done 
Well, you're, you're very kind. I do actually, because you know, people people write all the time, and I I don't respond all the time because I simply couldn't because there's too many, there's too many people. But um, one can tell from a YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, and you can tell the feedback on that. Uh, yeah. People are very gracious. I've done almost nothing to deserve it, but but uh, people are very sweet about their comments about uh, my musical efforts and general my approach to music broadly, more broadly, which is more interesting than just being a, a drummer, although heaven knows that's interesting enough. <laughs> so so the broad position is something I like talking about. Well, just in general, your view on your career and, and just musical risk-taking, you're very brave when it comes to that, and you're very... Also, you have, you know who you are and you want to pursue what makes you excited. And you've walked away from things that people would be like, I would give anything to continue doing that. But you're like, no, I have to do what makes me happy and fulfilled. So yeah. just that right there should inspire people. But um, this has been such a pleasure and uh, a checklist on life. So thank you so much. All right, Ben. My pleasure. I will speak to you soon, Bill. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, since we talked about him during the chat, this week's big fat favorite is Eric Slick, who has his own solo career, but is associated with Dr. Dog, Kevin Morby, Natalie Prass, and many more. And like I said, one of his choices was the instructional video, Bruford and the Beat. The release year was 1982. And of course, the man of the hour, the drummer was Bill Bruford. So here is what Eric had to say about Bill. After years of obsessing over Ringo in elementary school and then John Bonham in middle school, I was introduced to Yes by my parents in eighth grade. The drumming sounded alien to me. I had no clue what the drummer was doing. It was like a flurry of notes that felt as if they were dangling in midair and I could grab them for only a second and then they'd fly away. My dad told me the drummer was Bill Bruford, the best in the world. We had just gotten the internet and I would research what Bill Bruford was up to every day. Maybe he was on tour and I'd get to see him play one day. Unfortunately, that day never came. In 10th grade, I started getting the Interstate Music Catalog, and they had a slew of VHS instructional videos and some DVDs for sale. I saw Bruford and the Beat and gasped. I had no idea that he made a video. My birthday was coming up, so I asked my parents for it, and that was all I wanted. This is before YouTube, everyone. I would sit for weeks waiting for a VHS tape to arrive at my house like a clown. The tape arrived, and I must have watched the thing over 300 times. I had a 12-inch color VHS TV in my bedroom, and I put it on before walking to school. I'd come home and watch it after school. I wanted his setup so badly. A Ludwig superphonic snare, Tama Octobons, Simmons drums. I researched it and eventually bought a Simmons kit off eBay with some money I'd saved up working as a busboy at a pizzeria. The tape ended with a performance by the 1980s incarnation of King Crimson. The rhythm guitarist struck me, and I discovered his name was Adrian Ballou. It is still mind-blowing that Adrian would ask me to join his band a few years later, and I'd eventually meet all these people. I finally met Bill Bruford in 2016, and I completely blacked out as we talked. He was so kind and even complimented my playing. What a mensch. All right, cheers, everyone. Bye. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. 
Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.